You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 18. We're making our way verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to the 18th chapter. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9, but I want us to read beginning with the first verse. Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child. Let me just pause and say, you heard Terry's testimony this morning when he said, I had to admit that for 40 years I had it wrong. What did the Lord do in saving our brother? He humbled him brought him to the place of a child, made him teachable. Whoever therefore will humble himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea." Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. As I said this morning, we're focusing on verses 5 through 9. Let's read those again. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck, and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal Fire, And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Let's go to our God together for prayer. Lord, we do give you praise and thanks for all of your blessings to us. Above all, you have saved us. You have forgiven us of all of our sins. You have reconciled us to Yourself in union with Your Son. You have clothed us with Christ's righteousness. We are accepted to You in the Beloved. We are stationed in grace. 
Even this moment we are interceded for by our Savior at your right hand. We are not left as orphans, but we have your Spirit. And you have given us your Word. It is sharp as any two-edged sword, and it is powerful in its working. It is sufficient for all that we need to know and to live out for life and godliness. Lord, we are a blessed people. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your holy word, we ask you, by your Spirit, to be our teacher, to enlighten our minds and hearts, to strengthen us in our inner person, to be able to grasp the things that you've entrusted to us in the Scriptures. We do know, Lord, there are people hearing me today who don't yet know you, and we ask for them that you would save, that you would open hearts and eyes and save. But we gather as your people, we gather as your church, and we need this washing of the pure water of your word. We need this ongoing means for our sanctification. We need correction. We need encouragement. We need fortification. We need instruction. And so we ask you to meet with us in that way around your holy word in this next hour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How does God regard his children? Child of God, how does God see you? How does he regard you? The Bible emphasizes this. The Bible makes clear to us that this is something God wants His people to know. He wants us to know how He regards us. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. When a saint of God leaves this life, when they die, and go to be with their God, our God, The Lord takes note of it. He says this is a precious moment to Him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Well, if the death of God's people is something precious to God, what about the lives of God's people? Psalm 56 verse 8 says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And so they're the psalmist writing about his own struggles, the times when he tosses on his bed, the times when tears run down his cheeks, and he says, you kept count of my tossings, and my tears you have stored up in your bottle. They're all in your book. The Lord is taking note of your life, and then when the time comes for your death, he takes note of that also. You are precious to God. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 6, he contrasts the world's view of the apostles with God's view of the apostles. In the 8th verse, he writes, We are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown, and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. What is he doing in those verses? He is contrasting earthly appearances with heavenly realities, or you could say even earthly temporal realities with what will be true of us for forever. And that same kind of contrast. So the world sees the apostles one way, 
God sees the apostles another way, that same kind of contrast exists with all of us. In the estimation of this world, the people of God are of no account. We are nothing special. In fact, we are seen as undesirable. And the Lord acknowledges this in His Word in Hebrews 11, writing about the faith of believers. And he's giving an account of specific believers in specific instances where the faith that he grants was on display. But this is true of every one of the children of God. And so after having talked about in Hebrews 11 some of the glorious ways that faith was put on display in triumph, he writes about the glorious way that faith is put on display in trials and suffering and even death. The 35th verse of Hebrews 11, he writes, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then he writes this, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. Worthy. And I won't go on and read the rest of what he writes there, but the point is the world treated these people in a way that said, we don't want you here. And God's testimony is, you're right, you don't deserve them. You don't want them here. You think they are unworthy to live in your presence, but the almighty God who saved them says, you're not worthy to have them of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So how does the Lord regard His people? That's what these verses we've come to this morning tell us about. We read in John 17 last week, we took a break from Matthew and we're in John 17. We read how the Lord loved us and wants us to know that He loves us just as He loves His Son, loved us from all eternity, made us His own people. The verses we come to today in Matthew tell us we must believe this. But we must not only believe it to understand how God sees us, we must believe it to rightly see each other. God's children must see God's children through the lens of our union with Jesus Christ. God's children must see God's children as our King sees us. And so the effect of the verses we've come to is twofold. It is an encouragement for us as we think about how much God loves us, how He regards us, how He sees us, but it is also potentially a rebuke to us for how far short we fall in the way we see each other and in the ways that we behave toward each other, in the ways that we treat each other. Because we're not only to glory in the knowledge that God loves us, we are to obey our God with the knowledge that He loves my brothers and sisters. And so I must treat you in a way that accords with God's view of His people. We stop short of that sometimes, don't we? We want to glory in the knowledge that God loves me, but then I don't want to live in a way that says God loves you. And by the way, if I'm preaching this morning to believing families, 
then this is not just applied in the church, and this is not just applied in the public square, this has to be applied as near to you as your own home. If you're a believer, married to a believer, then dear sir, dear sister, it's not just you whom the Lord loves. He loves the one whom you're married to. And does your view of them, your words to them, your attitude toward them, your treatment of them, take into account what we're going to learn in these verses about how God regards His children. We're going to look at these verses under three headings. Let's read them one more time. Look again at verse 5. And whoever receives one such child, remember you have to become like a child to enter the kingdom. So when Jesus is talking about these children, He's talking about you. He's talking about His disciples. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. First thing I want to point out this morning is this. Christ personally identifies with God's children regarding their help. Christ personally identifies with God's children regarding their help. The first word is an encouraging word. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is encouraging for the people being received. Whoever receives one such child, right? You take them in, you embrace them, you help them, you love them, you care for them. If you're the one being received, if you're a child of God and you're being received, Jesus has just said that the person who receives you, it's as if they're receiving him. What an encouragement that is for you. That someone helping you is viewed as someone helping Jesus. It's also an encouragement for the people doing the receiving. When you love a brother or sister in Christ, because remember, this is being spoken to Christ's disciples. This is a word for disciples. So when you extend kindness, help, care, encouragement to a fellow child of God, you are doing it for your Lord. Jesus says that to help one of God's children is to help him. God saves sinners in union with his son. Then God regards those redeemed people in union with his son. We have to have the eyes to see this. That Jesus has so identified himself with his people and God has so identified his people with his son 
that the treatment of God's children is regarded by God and by his son as the very treatment of Jesus himself. And this is not the only place where we see this, is it? Do you remember when the Lord arrested Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? What he said to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Or when Jesus returns and separates the sheep from the goats, Matthew 25, 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Child of God, if somehow our Lord came to visit us right now in person, in the body, and I told you that the Lord Jesus had a need. Would you meet it? There would be a rush in this room to see who could meet it first. If I told you that the Lord Jesus was imprisoned, would you go visit him? If the Lord Jesus desired to visit your home, would you have him in? And the first point you see, that Jesus wishes to drive home with these disciples is that if you see the children of God rightly, you're going to see them in their union with Jesus so that what we do or don't do toward God's children is a commentary on what our view of Jesus is. So here's my question. If we should see the family of God the way God wants us to see ourselves and each other, how would it change our treatment of each and every brother and sister in Christ, including the people in your own family. If you go home today and you say, I'm going to see my wife in her union with Jesus, will it change the way you've been behaving toward her? If you say, I'm going to see my husband in his union with Jesus, Will it change the way you've been behaving toward him? The person in the church, you don't find that your personality clicks with them. Maybe they get on your nerves just a little bit. How would it change your attitude toward them if you purpose to see them in their union with Jesus? Because listen, this isn't some sort of mind trick we're playing. It's reality. That's what our Lord is telling us. This is real. He gave His blood to purchase them. He brought them into a union with Himself by the work of the Spirit of God. This is the Father's choice being worked out in time, in history, through salvation. They are in union with Jesus. Do you see that? And therefore, does it change the way that you behave toward each and every child of God? So the first word is encouragement. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. That will transform a family. That will transform a church. That will transform a life. But then the second thing we see is he not only identifies himself with God's children for their help, he zealously identifies himself with God's children against their harm. Christ zealously identifies with God's children against their harm. He is their defender, their protector. 
He will one day dole out retribution for the ways that they have been mistreated. Verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. Here's something that's a little bit difficult about this passage. He is speaking this to disciples. It is about disciples. And yet he's warning disciples about their treatment of disciples. Right? So he's speaking to the little ones. And yet warning them about mistreatment of the little ones. Why would he do this? Well, let me give you two reasons. First of all, if you really are one of these little ones, you don't just receive your Lord's encouragements, you receive your Lord's warnings. So you warn a true child of God when the shepherd warns one of his true sheep, they hear him. And in that way, he helps them. He protects them from sinful behavior. But the second reason this is fitting is because even on this occasion, we know of one, at least, who professed to be one of his little ones who wasn't. That was Judas. So there will always be, on this side of heaven, in the company of the professing people of God, there are going to be people who claim to be one of these little ones, but they aren't really one of them. And one of the ways that they are exposed is that they don't have it in their heart to live this out. They hear the warnings, but it doesn't register. They know that their attitude or their speech or their behavior is wrong, but it doesn't change. Because they don't really take into their heart the warning that sheep hear. That makes sense when you say amen. So this is why he's warning little ones about little ones. In fact, verses 5 and 6 have been described as a promise warning proverb. Often in the Proverbs, you'll see parallel statements. Things are stated differently, but they're meant to be read together. That's really what you have in verses 5 and 6. On the one side is the promise of blessing for those who help. On the other side is the warning of punishment for those who hurt, which means they're meant to be read together. And so on the other side of I identify with God's children for their help is I identify with God's children, Jesus says, for when they are harmed. Now, a few things I want to say about verse 6 and verse 7. First of all, we've got to answer the question, what is this stumbling that Jesus is talking about? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, what is this stumbling? And when you study this particular word, in the words, the idea of scandalizing, to cause, to trip up, to stumble. When you look at that word in the New Testament, there are multiple meanings or multiple applications of the word. Sometimes it refers to a falling away. To stumble is to fall away. Sometimes it refers to a barrier so that someone doesn't come to Jesus at all. It's not that they came to him and they fell away. They don't even come to him because... The gospel, for example, is a stumbling block. The message of the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. So it's a barrier. The stumbling block is a barrier in that case. 
Sometimes it's used to refer to just harming someone, hurting someone spiritually. For example, in 1 Corinthians 8.13, it says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. I don't want to represent a spiritual difficulty in the life of another person. Therefore, I'll put away what is a liberty of mine. Paul makes clear that this kind of stumbling grieved him deeply. When he saw a child of God made unstable for a moment due to someone else's influence, he talked about how this bothered him. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine: Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? He says, when I watch God's people influenced in a way that causes them to struggle, it makes me angry. In Matthew, the word is always used to refer to falling away. Sometimes the falling away is permanent. Sometimes the falling away is temporary. One of the ways it's used where it was permanent is in the parable of the sower and the seed. Matthew 13, 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as we studied those soils, we understood this is a lost person who seems to embrace the gospel, but they ultimately fall away. Same word. Scandalizatai is the word there, form of the word that we have in our text, to scandalize. They fall away permanently. But Matthew 26, 31 uses it in a temporary sense. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, talking to his disciples. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You will all fall away. Well, of course, they return. They are true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're going to be put aside for a time due to his arrest and his trials and all of that. So what does he mean in our text? I think given the context, what he's talking about is something used by Satan to move a disciple off the pathway of following Jesus temporarily. Something that would produce instability in a believer. Something that would represent troubling their soul. Something that would represent moving them for a time, for a season, out of the pathway of, of how they ought to be walking. That's what he's talking about when he talks about stumbling because he makes clear this is someone who has believed in him. This is one of the little ones who have believed in him, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him. So I think this is a genuine believer moved out of the way for a time due to the influence of someone who represents a stumbling block. And you do know this happens. I mean, genuine believers can be troubled for a time by false doctrine, troubled for a time by terrible behavior on the part of believers that they've looked up to, moved out of the way for a time due to mistreatment, sinful words, attitudes, influence, example. 
As we read earlier in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, a misuse of liberty issues that causes someone else to be hurt, that's the stumbling. And here's what's interesting. It seems that the source of the stumbling in our verses is someone who is lost. So the people being made to stumble, these are disciples, but the person envisioned here as causing the stumbling, even though Jesus is addressing disciples with these warnings, the person who causes the stumbling in our verses seems to be someone who doesn't know Jesus. Why do you say that, Richard? Well, because of the punishment. What is the punishment in view? It would be better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. And scholars tell us this was actually a punishment, an execution used in the first century under Roman rule. They would take a criminal, take them out to the sea, tie a heavy millstone around their neck, throw it off into the water, and the person drowns in the depths. And Jesus says, you cause one of my children to stumble. It would be better for you, better for you, if this is what happened to you which envisions something worse than execution. Now, that's not a believer. That's an unbeliever. That's wrath. That's wrath. And when he goes on to talk about stumbling in verses 8 and 9, notice what is in view. What is in view is the fire of hell. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away from you, it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And he says in verse 9, the fiery hell. So he repeats it. So what is in view in terms of punishment is something worse than execution. And when you talk about sobering warnings for me in my own life, what I'm being warned about is eternal fire. So the ones being made to stumble, moved out of the way, off the pathway temporarily, troubled, made unstable, believers... The people being used to do this, unbelievers. Why is that important for us to know? Beyond the first point, which is, man, how much does God love us? That Jesus would identify with his children in this way. Don't you harm them. Beyond that, why is this important? Because what it tells you is this. A true child of God doesn't want to be a stumbling block. If the stumbling blocks are unbelievers, then what does that tell you about believers? It's not to say that we can't be a stumbling block at times. We can be, but we don't want to be. These warnings resonate with us. Our heart is, Lord, if I am that, if I'm a stumbling block to any of your children, please change my life so that I'm not one. This is not what will characterize a Christian. To be an unholy influence on the lives of fellow Christians. Let me make this practical for you. If I were to tell you that right now your current behaviors, your current attitudes, your current words, your current examples, your current choices are doing spiritual damage to a disciple of Jesus Christ, does that matter to you? If I say to you that right now your current path is a potential harm to a fellow disciple of Jesus Christ, do you care? And show me someone who doesn't care, who disregards that, who selfishly goes on living like 
They want to live regardless of the effect it has on other people. I am showing you someone, if they continue in that way, I'm showing you someone who is unregenerate. Because that's not how believers think. Now, our Lord makes clear, doesn't He, in verse 7, that stumbling blocks are going to come. It's inevitable. In this world that is fallen, in this world full of sin, you're going to have all sorts of people and influences that threaten the stability of the children of God. But despite the fact that it's inevitable, you know, sometimes maybe this is the attitude, well, my goodness, the world is full of sin. God hasn't called us out of the world. How important is my example? I mean, the world is full of bad examples. Well, the world is full of bad examples. It is inevitable. But notice something. Nevertheless, Jesus says, woe to that man. I mean, he brings it down to the individual level. Woe to that person through whom the stumbling block comes. How fiercely does Jesus identify himself with the children of God? So fiercely that you do damage to one of his children and you pay for it for forever. Now, obviously, if you're truly a child of God, you're forgiven of that. But what he's saying is, if this is what characterizes a person, it's because they're unregenerate. Because saved people don't want to be stumbling blocks. Show me how I'm harming brothers and sisters and I'll stop. I'll repent. I'll ask for forgiveness. I don't want to be that kind of influence. Do you want to be that kind of influence? Do you take it lightly when someone says to you, that troubles me? Or do you take it to heart? But now this gets even more personal. So Christ identifies with his children for their help. You help my children, you've helped me. Christ identifies himself with his children for their harm. You do harm to one of them and you're doing it to me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what awaits such a person that this is their practice, this is their character, is eternal fire. Something worse than being drowned in the depths of the sea with a millstone hung around your neck. So fierce is Christ's devotion to his children. But now notice the third thing we see, verses 8 and 9. Christ soberly warns God's children for their preservation. A word spoken to disciples about disciples. And he says in verse 8, And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. Here's something we can't miss. Christ is not just warning about how our behaviors, choices, temptations to sin might affect another person. So serious is the matter of sin that he warns us about our causes of our own stumbling. It's not just what I might do that would cause you to stumble what am I doing that is causing me to stumble? How am I contributing right now to the threatening of my own soul? That's obvious that our Lord is speaking metaphorically. He's not saying literally rip your eye out or 
cut your hand off. But why is he speaking in such radical terms? Because this is a radically important issue. We're to take sin seriously. Do you take sin seriously? Do you underestimate what is at stake when we talk about spiritual influences, the value, the preciousness of the soul? Do we underestimate eternal realities? What are you allowing in your own life that doesn't just threaten other people, threatens you, you see? If your hand offends you, Jesus says, cut it off. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, causes you to stumble, cut it off. Be careful what you are, metaphorically speaking, what you're taking hold of. What are you bringing into your life? What are you taking hold of? Be careful, Jesus says. Be careful. talks about your feet. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Where are you traveling? Where are you going? Metaphorically speaking, what is the course of your life right now? What's the trajectory of your life? Where are you headed spiritually? And if your feet are causing you to travel in the wrong direction, correct your course. Do whatever is necessary to change what you're taking hold of. Do whatever is necessary to change where you're headed. Be careful what you see. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. What are you allowing into your mind? Through the eye gate. Through the ear gate. What are you listening to? I can't tell you how many times we meet with people struggling spiritually, and lo and behold, they're listening to some internet teacher absolutely casting off biblical ecclesiology, giving their ear and their heart to someone who does not watch for their soul, has no responsibility for their spiritual well-being, and then they wonder why they're struggling. Where are your ears? Where are your eyes? Where are your hands? Where are your feet? Better to take radical action against those things that are influencing you to sin than to lose your soul. John MacArthur comments, the Lord is obviously speaking figuratively because no part of our physical bodies causes us to sin. And removing any part of it would not keep us from sinning. The point was that a person should do whatever is necessary, no matter how extreme and painful it might be, to keep from sinning himself or to keep from causing others to sin. Nothing is worth keeping if in any way it leads to sin. And the implication here is that there's overcoming grace available for victory over temptation and sin. That is, if I'm willing to pluck out the eye, cut off the hand, cut off the feet, the Lord will give me the grace to make the right choices. I won't perish in the end. I will persevere in the end because God is at work in the lives of His people, giving them the grace to put away the things that threaten their soul. Which is why returning into the thought, if the idea of causing someone else to stumble doesn't move you, or if the idea of your own stumbling doesn't move you, what is being manifest is that, I mean, if this is your course, you're unregenerate. You don't know Christ because this matters to the children of God. 
It matters not just how Jesus regards me, it matters how Jesus regards you. And it matters not just that I wouldn't be a cause of stumbling in your life, it matters that I'm not pursuing a course that is a cause for stumbling in my own life. This is what characterizes the children of God. Remember, this entire chapter focuses on that issue, the children of God. How do you live as a child of God? You've got to become like a child to enter the kingdom. We saw that in verses 1 through 4. And now we're seeing how God regards these children so identified with Jesus that when someone helps us, they help Him. And when someone harms us, He is zealous to defend us. And we ought to understand the seriousness of sin in such a way that whatever's causing our stumbling, we are more than ready to put it away because what matters most to us is following Christ and the everlasting well-being of our soul. So let me finish by just asking, is there anyone right now you might be affecting negatively by your choices, by your words, by your influence, you are potentially doing them spiritual harm. I'm asking you, will you repent of that? Will you repent of that? Will you turn away from it? Will you value the soul of the person you're influencing? Second, is there anything you're allowing in your own life that is doing you spiritual harm? or could potentially do harm to other people, and will you get rid of that? What is it that is not influencing you well for the sake of Christ? Are you willing to just put it away? Or is it worth more to you than your own soul? I mean, those are the terms Jesus presents in verses 8 and 9, aren't they? Better, he says, than to lose your hand and feet now, than to lose them for forever. Better to lose your eye now than to lose the whole body in hell. And figuratively speaking, what he's saying is better to rid yourself of something influencing you in sin now. Get rid of it now than to lose everything. Is that how you see it? And then I'm I'm asking, will you see yourself and your brethren in our union with Christ? And would you allow the Lord to teach you, to teach me concerns, attitudes, responses, behaviors that match that reality. If you, my brother, if you, my sister, are in union with Jesus Christ, how should I regard you? Knowing how our Lord regards you, let my treatment of you match how Christ regards you. And if we see each other, ourselves and each other, through that lens, not only are we assured of God's love for us, but we learn how to express God's love for each other. That's how we live out God's love for each other, when we see one another in our union with Christ. May our God grant us those eyes. We have them if we know Jesus. May He grant us to live with that vision. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You 
for the encouragement of the Scriptures, for Your faithfulness, not just to encourage us, but also, Lord, to hold before our mind's eye the dangers that truly exist and that You're at work, even through the warnings, preserving Your children. You've given us, as Your sheep, ears to hear our shepherd's voice so that when He warns us, we hear Him. And we desire to please Him. We glory in Christ's love for us, but Lord, we also want to live out Christ's love for our brothers and sisters. So we ask this morning that You would strengthen us to see these things rightly, and then, Lord, to respond in a way that would most honor You in light of this truth. We pray for anyone hearing me today who doesn't yet belong to the family of God. May they understand that they cannot reconcile themselves to You, but You have given Your only Son that sinners deserving Your everlasting wrath might be forgiven of all their sins and granted as a gift the righteousness of Jesus and in that way be reconciled to You, the living God, by faith in Your Son, the only Savior You've given to people. And so we pray for those hearing me today who don't know Jesus. We pray that they would turn from their sins and trust in Christ for forgiveness and life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.